John 17, 6 through 11. This is the word of Almighty God for us today. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and, you, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you. And they have believed that you sent me. I'm praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Pray with me. Father, please bless our study of your holy word this day. There is beauty here. There is depth here. There is there's mystery here. And I pray that everything that we read today will glorify you. Everything that we say today will honor you. That you'll teach us, encourage us, and grow us to your glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. I did forget because I tend to forget to say that if you have a little one that you want to take to the nursery, you are welcome to do that at this time. If you have a little one you want to keep in here, we are thrilled about that too. So uh, just know that is um, always available to you. Somewhere between the upper room and the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus prayed. His prayer was powerful, passionate, pointed. In his prayer, the Lord Jesus taught his disciples and taught us through their witness. And all that the Savior prayed brought glory to God. The prayer of Jesus in John 17, it is a marvel. It is the single longest passage in Scripture recording for us the words of the praying Christ. The prayer itself set just before Jesus' arrest, trials, and crucifixion, shows us what the Savior saw as vitally important as he faced the cross, the completion of his ministry on earth. Now last week, you guys remember last week, right? Jesus was facing the greatest suffering anyone could ever imagine Even as he prepared to give his life to save the souls of God's children, Jesus focused first and foremost on the glory of God. Praying, glorify your son that the son may glorify you, John 17, 1. And that taught us last week, if you were paying attention, that we should be focused on God's glory. We saw that God is glorified in his sovereignty over our salvation, verse 2, in the focus of our eternal life, verse 3, in Christ's completion of his mission, verse 4, and in Christ's divinity, verse 5. Now we're going to move forward, and we're going to continue to listen in as the Savior talks to his Father. And in doing so, we're going to find four points of application So come back with me into Jesus' great high priestly prayer as we look at a prayer for God's people. So point number one, you guys all ready for this? Point number one, rest in the sovereignty of God. Rest in the sovereignty 
of God. Look at verse 6. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Back in verse 4, Jesus said he had accomplished the work the Father sent him to do. Praying in front of his disciples, Jesus made sure that everybody understood there were no longer any tasks for Jesus to accomplish before his completion of the ultimate task, dying and rising for the salvation of our souls. Here in verse 6, again we see a hint that Jesus has already done what he came to do. He manifested God's name to the disciples. Now, Jesus has made sure here that the disciples know the true God. Manifesting God's name is not Jesus saying he gave the disciples a secret code word for God that other people don't have, right? The right name, the secret name, while others have the wrong name. That's not what he was doing. The point that Jesus is making is that he has shown the disciples the true identity of God. The disciples understand God as holy, as triune, as perfect, They see God as the creator, the savior, the judge. Bottom line, Jesus has shown the disciples the real God, not some man-made alternative. Chapter 1, verse 18 in the prologue, it says to us, No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. And that's what Jesus says he's done. Well, Jesus has made God known. Here's the question, and this is where we're getting started now. Who has known God? To whom has Jesus, God the Son, revealed the truth of the name of God? If we look closely at verse 6, we're going to see something of deep doctrinal significance. Jesus says, He manifested God's name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. And here, friends, we have a proclamation of God's sovereign election of the saved. Now, before we begin to unpack the doctrine here, and it's always possible because I can't see all of you that some of you may have just started squirming. Let me make an important disclaimer. And Providence, listen to this disclaimer I'm making because I'm making it for you too. Not everybody who knows Jesus is eager to understand or embrace the doctrine of sovereignty, God's sovereignty in our salvation. Right? You guys know that that's true, right? At Providence Reformed Church, we unashamedly proclaim the sovereignty of God But we have no desire ever to be unkind towards somebody who doesn't see the Bible's teaching as we see it here. We've often said here, we want PRC to be the sweetest, kindest, most gracious Reformed Church you've ever seen. And that means, friends, even as we proclaim doctrines that we believe to be biblical... Doctrines that make us distinct from other groups that are out there. Doctrines like sovereign election. 
we will not do so in a nasty way. So if you hear what I'm about to proclaim, and it's not a thing you believe, or it's not something you've ever believed before, I want you to know this. You're still welcome here. Nobody here is going to put you down for wrestling with this topic. Many of us wrestled with this teaching for years before embracing it as biblical and beautiful. Isn't that true? Didn't many of you wrestle with the sovereign, the doctrine of sovereign election for a while before you got there? Well, we're going to give everybody the same space to think it through with the Scripture and the Holy Spirit. And we will happily sit down and talk with you about it if you want to talk about it, because we do think it's good. But we want you to know you're welcome here. And I want you to know you're safe here as we work through this doctrine together. Make sense? Providence, you're going to be sweet to people that wrestle with this, right? Amen. Now, the reason I say this passage here points us towards sovereign election and salvation is the concept that God the Father, before Christ came into the world, gave his Son a people. It's funny that that's what we read in our catechism today. And I had no way of planning that. God is, in fact, in control. Jesus said of the saved, yours, second to the Father, yours they were, like already, and you gave them to me. And friends, that hearkens to the eternal covenant of redemption, the pactum salutis. You might remember, we've talked through this doctrine a few times, right? Wasn't it this time last year that you heard Pactum Salutis about every Sunday? Before there was time, God the Father elected a people to salvation and chose to send his Son to save them. The Son chose to be sent by the Father to redeem the elect, to receive the redeemed as a gift from the Father. The Holy Spirit chose to aid the Son in his work, to indwell the saved, to seal them for eternal life. And we saw that concept last week in verse 2. If you look up at John 17, 2, Jesus said, Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life, to whom? Look at it. To all whom you have given him. God the Father gave the Son authority to do something. It's authority. It's not just opportunity. It's power. It's the right. God the Father authorized the Son to accomplish something. It's not a maybe. It's a certainty. The Son has authority over all flesh. All life everywhere. Does anybody have trouble with that as a statement, by the way? Jesus, God the Son, has authority over all flesh. Are you guys cool with that? All right. What did the Father authorize the Son to do? He's authorized to give eternal life to people. Here's the question. All people? Not according to the word of God here. Jesus has been authorized to give eternal life to the people the Father has given him. The Son has authority over all flesh, and he gives eternal life, not to all flesh, but to those the Father 
gave him. Bless you. Ask yourself. If the father has authorized the son to give eternal life to all the father has given him. Do you believe those whom the father, that the, sorry, do you believe that those whom the son is authorized to give life will have it? What do you guys think? Do you think God, the father authorized the son to give somebody life who's not going to get it? Has the son succeeded or failed at his mission? Will the son succeed or fail in the future? If the father has authorized his son to give life to somebody, that somebody will have life. In truth, we've been seeing the concept of God the Father saving people for his glory, giving people to Christ by his sovereign power, all through the gospel according to John. I'm going to give you a bunch of texts so far. They're going to start in John 1. And they're going to roll forward. Sorry, let me take you to John 3 first. But I want you to listen and listen to the truth that we're saved for God's glory, by God's authority, as a gift from the Father to the Son. All right, we'll do 112. Go to, if you want to turn, you can, but you've got to be willing to turn fast or just write them down. John chapter 1, 12 and 13. Listen to this. But to all who did receive him... Who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Believers are made children of God. Is that true? You guys believe that all who believe are are children of God? But, this is important, they do this based on the will of God not their own merit. How about John 3, verse 8? Jesus speaks of the Holy Spirit, says, The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear it sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Now, those who are born of the Spirit of God are made alive by the Spirit of God. They're saved, right? But the Spirit, John, Jesus says in John 3, is a force that is, a, that is as unseen and uncontrollable to mankind as is the wind. How many of you have ever started the wind outside? How many of you have been affected by the wind? Jesus says that's how you're saved, affected by the Spirit. John 5, 21, Jesus says, For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. The Son gives life to the ones he will. Jesus is the one who's in charge. John 6, 37, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. Who comes to the Son? The one the Father has already given him. John 6, 39 and 40. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So the Son is going to keep all who believe. Amen? 
But those who believe are those whom the Father has given the Son. John 6, 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. So we come to Jesus, not based on our nature, not based on who we are naturally, but based on the power of the Lord moving us to desire God. God draws us to the Son with force, like a man drawing a sword from its scabbard or a fisherman drawing in the nets. John 6, verse 63. It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I've spoken to you are spirit and life. We need the Spirit of God to give us life. We cannot manufacture life from ourselves. In our flesh, we can do nothing. John 6, verse 65 He said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it's granted him by the Father. We come to the Lord when we are granted the desire to do so as a gift from God. John 10, verses 3 and 4. To him the gatekeeper opens, talking about the sheepies here. The sheep hear his voice and he calls his own sheep By name and leads them out. When he's brought out all his own, he goes before them and the sheep follow him for they know his voice. Or John 10, 14 and 15. I'm the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me just as the father knows me and I know the father and I lay down my life for the sheep. Notice Jesus, the good shepherd, has come to save his own sheep. All right, John 10, 26 to 29. You do not believe because you're not part of my flock. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. Jesus did not say, Some folks are not part of the flock because they don't believe. He said, the ones who don't believe don't believe because they're not part of the flock. And we again see the sheep who are part of the flock are those given to Jesus by the Father. All right, here's several together. John 13, 18. I'm not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen. Or John 15, 16. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. Or John fifteen nineteen. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Christ chose those who are his. Do you feel like there is a running theme and weight here? Last week I said that our salvation is about God and it's of God from start to finish. That's the theme that runs through John's gospel. God saves us by his power for his glory. We come to God because he chooses us, draws us, and saves 
us. And when he saves us, he gives us the joy of being the gift that he gives to his son for his glory. In a way, anybody who's saved in any other way. Now, let me be clear about what we are and are not saying. If a person comes to Christ for salvation, this is the result of the work of God sovereignly moving that person's heart. How many of you have come to Jesus for salvation? If so, that is the result of God moving you. If a person does not come to Christ for salvation, it's not because God does something to push them away. Instead, a person who doesn't come is a person who doesn't want to come and they're allowed to have what they want. So if we are lost, it's our own doing. If we're saved, it's God's doing and he gets all the credit, all the glory for anybody's salvation. Now, are we saying, therefore, there's no human responsibility in this process? Not at all. Go back to John 17, look at verse 6. That's the verse we're trying to open up today. Jesus said, I've manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. While God is sovereign over this entire affair, Christ is also clear that his followers have kept his word. They have heard. They have believed. And even if God is the one who made them believe, they believed. And even if God has changed them, they are changed. All right. This is big, mysterious stuff. And like I said before, if you're not there yet on this, understand we're unpacking the mysteries of how God does things that are really tough for us to see. I would just challenge you, how can you think about salvation in such a way that God gets the most glory of all? You want to wrestle through it some more? I'll be happy to visit with you anytime. And I promise you, I won't be mean to you if you're not there. But what do we do with this sort of doctrine, friends? Well, let me, let me suggest a couple things for us. First, as we said last week, give God 100% of the glory for anybody's salvation. All of the saved are the people who would otherwise have been lost, but God the Father chose them, gave them to his son as a gift, sent Jesus to redeem them, and drew them to salvation. If you're saved, marvel at the grace of God. You would never have come to God had God not changed your heart and moved you. So thank him. Thank God for that mercy and give God the glory. Second, Christians, share the gospel with confidence. Nothing about the doctrine of God's sovereignty eliminates your responsibility to proclaim the good news of salvation in Jesus to a lost world and to invite them to be saved. 
So you need to tell the world God calls people to repent and believe to be saved. In Acts 17, verses 30 and 31, Paul, standing at the Areopagus, says, Now he, God, commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Matthew 28, 18 to 20. Jesus said, all authority has been on heaven and on earth has been given to me. So you go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. Christians, take the gospel to all people and have confidence to know that God is going to save people by grace through faith in Christ. And know this, the outcome of evangelism is not your responsibility because God is the sovereign one. You tell me if this is good news. Nobody's going to be saved because you're clever. And nobody's going to be lost because you're not clever. Rejoice in the role that you get to play as someone who brings the gift of salvation to others. How many of you have little people in your house? Got any little people that have little people in the house? Husbands, have you ever had your kid take, your, take a gift to your wife for you? Or wives, you ever had a little, little person carry the gift to the husband? Do you think the little kid says, well, I didn't buy this gift, and I'm not the ultimate sovereign one over this gift, therefore it's worthless for me to carry the gift? Is that what the kid does? What does the kid do? They get happy when they get to carry the gift from daddy to mommy, or from mommy to daddy, right? They love being a part of what happened. Guess what, guys? You don't cause somebody to change. You're not the one. But you know what you do get to do? You get to carry the gift and say, here, this is for you. And that is a great, great role for us to play. Don't you think? Rest in the sovereignty of God. And if you, for some reason, have not yet come to Jesus, what in the world do you do with all this? Well, point number two, it's one of our favorite points in the gospel according to John. If you have not yet come to faith, what do you guys think point number two is? Believe in Jesus. Very good. Look at verses seven and eight. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you, for I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. So now Jesus explains what happened in the experience of the disciples. In verse 6, we learned that God's sovereign hand is moving behind the scenes, doing what only God can do. But the personal experience of the disciples, it's very simple. They believed in Jesus and they found eternal life. And if you don't yet know Jesus, you need to believe in Jesus and be saved. 
Don't stress yourself about the secret things and the secret workings of God. Here's the question. Do you want to know God? Do you want eternal life? Then believe. In Acts 16, when Paul spoke to the Philippian jailer, the jailer comes out and says, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Paul does not unpack the doctrine of sovereignty here. Instead, in verses 30 and 31 of Acts 16, Paul says, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. It's true for you. It's true for your family. There are no complexities here. Believe and you will be saved. So after highlighting the sovereignty of God in verse 6 and verses 7 and 8, Jesus highlights the fact that the disciples, they believed. Verse 7 The Savior said, now they know that everything that you've given me is from you. The saved understand Jesus came. He did the work of God. He was given a mission to accomplish by his father and he perfectly accomplished that mission. Nothing Jesus did was outside of the will and the way of God. He is, after all, God the Son, perfectly in step with the eternal plan of his father and with the Holy Spirit. Verse 8, Jesus points to the words that he preached. For I have given them the words you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. Jesus proclaimed the truth of God. The disciples received those words. They believed in Jesus and believed that Jesus had fulfilled the plan of God. You want to make this super, super simple? Because not all, you know, again, I don't pretend to be that bright. Here's how simple this is. All that doctrine of election there in verse 6, great. Verses 7 and 8 tell you this worldly experience of the disciples. Jesus preached, they believed, they were saved. By the way, Christians, how many of that's the truth for you? Somebody told you the truth, you believed, and you were saved. Amen. You want to be saved? Believe in Jesus. God's word says that nobody will come to the Father except through Jesus. God's word tells us all who call on the name of the Lord, the name of Jesus, will be saved. God's word says that whoever believes in Jesus will not perish, but have eternal life. So turn away from your sin, believe the word of God, believe in Jesus. This is how you will be saved. And Christians... You want to see people saved? Proclaim the word of God to people, just like Jesus proclaimed that word to his followers. Tell people the truth. Then you leave the results in the hands of the sovereign God who saved your soul. Third point now. Rejoice in relationship with God. Rejoice in relationship with God. Verses 9 and 10. I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they're yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I'm glorified in them. Now, what we've seen so far, Jesus has magnified the sovereignty of God. Jesus has also pointed out the fact that the disciples have believed. We know that all glory for anyone's salvation belongs only to God. And we know that all who are saved are saved by grace through faith, genuine faith, personal faith in Jesus and his finished work. The saved believe and they entrust their souls to Jesus in accord with the word of God. 
But let's not forget, Jesus is praying here. We're learning, yes, but Jesus is talking to his father as he walks resolutely to the cross. And Jesus is praying for his disciples. Jesus is praying for believers. Notice how exclusive Jesus is in this prayer. Not praying for the world. In John's telling of the gospel, the world often is a term that's used to represent the entire system of evil and darkness that opposes God. You're either in the family of God or you're in the world. You're either surrendered to God or you oppose God. Jesus is not praying for the evil ones, for the attackers of the faith. He's not praying for those who despise God and who willingly walk in darkness. At least he's not praying for the ones who are going to remain in that state. Jesus is praying for his disciples. He describes them as those the Father has given him. And he even claims that these disciples are the Father's property. They are yours. Now, you guys want to see something big? Something like theologically big? Watch this. Because this is a massive claim Jesus makes. The Son declares to the Father... All mine are yours and yours are mine. How many of you feel like that is a gigantic claim from Jesus? How many of you are waiting to see why? One of those phrases is just blatantly obvious, isn't it? But one is giant. For Jesus to say to God the Father, All mine are yours, is not really a big deal, is it? Don't you guys know full well that all things everywhere belong to God the Father? If you said to God, all my stuff is yours, what have you given God? Have you given God anything? Because it's his to begin with, right? But for Jesus to then say, all yours are mine, that's massive. Ask yourself, who can claim To own everything God owns. Only God owns what God owns. For Jesus to say all the Father's people are his people is for Jesus to put himself on equal footing with the Father. Once again, Jesus just declared in his prayer to be God co-equal with God the Father. And Jesus says of his disciples, he's glorified in them. Last week we spent a little bit of time pointing out that the number one priority for everything God does is God's glory. And we made sure that we would realize this is good for us because God's glory is the source of your highest joy. Well here, as an equal with the Father, Jesus says he is glorified in the ones he saves. Jesus is accomplishing his mission, which is being glorified and glorifying his Father. And while all this is significant doctrine, there's something for you and me to grab hold of and to rejoice in. Jesus didn't pray for the world, the evil, the ones who will not come to him. Jesus did pray for the ones he saves. He claims them as his own. Jesus is glorified in them. Jesus says they are the Father's and that the Father has given them to him. 
And without unpacking the end of the prayer, I'll let you in on a little secret. While Jesus prays these things about his 11 disciples who are right there with him, he applies this to every single person who will come to believe in him in the future. Thus, this is true of everybody who believes in Jesus, everybody who's saved today. Jesus is praying this stuff about people like you and like me. Do you know Jesus? Have you believed? If you have, you have a glorious relationship. Jesus says to God the Father that you belong both to Jesus and to his Father. Jesus says he's glorified in you, in your faith, in your salvation. Jesus, right before he went to the cross, prayed for you. And he keeps you. And he loves you. Rejoice in relationship with God. Christian, you matter. Does that mess you up to hear? You matter. Now, you don't matter because of some skill you have or goodness you produce. You matter because you have been given by the Father to his Son. You matter because the Son is glorified in you. You matter because God calls you his very child. You matter because God chose to make you matter. Find joy in this. Find hope in having a true relationship with Jesus. Last point. Point number four. Rejoice in Christ's finished work. Rejoice in Christ's finished work. Let's do the first half of verse 11 and we'll be done. Jesus says, I'm no longer in the world, but they're in the world, and I am coming to you. We're wrapping up a section here. And the Son of God points out to his Father very soon, he's no longer going to physically be in the world with the disciples. Well, the disciples are going to be left to live in a very tough world. The Son is going to return to his Father and, and that's going to open the prayer that, Lord willing, we'll cover next week, right? Where, where from verses 11 to 19, Jesus prays that the Father will preserve the disciples. But let's not miss something very important that Jesus says here. The Son of God said to his Father, I am coming to you. I don't feel like you're blown away by that. How does it happen? There's only one way. For God the Son to return to God the Father. And it's not an easy road. Jesus, God the Son, will return to his Father by way of the cross, the tomb, the resurrection, and the ascension. Staring Jesus in the face is the darkest moment of all eternity. God the Son will very soon walk a hill and be nailed to a cross to suffer in front of mocking men. And far worse than those physical sufferings. And they were awful. Far worse. Jesus will take on himself the proper punishment for every single sin God will ever forgive. 
Jesus, who doesn't deserve any punishment for himself because he's perfect. Jesus would die as our sacrificial substitute. But if just dying is all Jesus would do, the son could not say he was returning to the father. If all Jesus is going to do is die, we have no hope. Jesus would not only die, he would be buried and he would return to life on the third day. Jesus would conquer death and he would prove to everybody, everybody who would pay attention, he is God's son. He did pay the price for our sins and the mission is accomplished And then Jesus, after 40 more days, is going to return to heaven alive to be seated on the throne of the universe where he now reigns as king and where where he awaits his return to this earth as the conquering king of kings and lord of lords. That little line, I am coming to you, reminds us that Jesus perfectly finished his work. There's no longer a sacrifice that needs to be made for sins. Jesus paid it all. Now everybody who entrusts his soul or her soul to Jesus has forgiveness and life forever. All who believe in Jesus, all who have believed in Jesus will come out of our graves one day, be given resurrection bodies, and we will rejoice with Jesus Christ forever. And that's why I say rejoice in Christ's finished work. And we've got to stop. We've got to pull back from this prayer. But there's a couple responses I just want to remind you to make. If you don't yet know Jesus, believe in Jesus today. It's that simple. If you have come to faith in Jesus, rest in the sovereignty of God, rejoice in relationship with God, rejoice in Christ's finished work. Let's pray. Lord God, I thank you very much for your word. I thank you for letting us in on this prayer from Jesus. I thank you for letting us see it and know it and find hope in it and to build doctrine from it. I pray that you will help us rightly to give you all the glory for anyone's salvation. I pray that you will help people who don't understand that to find their hearts wanting more and more to magnify you in all that you've done. I pray that you will save souls, change lives, and make us true, true worshipers. That's our prayer in Jesus' holy name. Amen.